Thank you for joining us. My name is Mike Livermore, and I'm a professor here at UVA Law. Today is the third installment in the Place and Power series of virtual conversations, exploring connections between human place-based relationships and the law and politics of environmental governance, including governance of the built environment. This series is sponsored by the Program in Law, Communities, and the Environment uh, here at UVA Law, the Virginia Environmental Law Journal, and the Virginia Environmental Law Forum. I'm delighted to be joined today by our moderator, Rich Schrager, and two fantastic guests, David Trout and Thad Williamson. I'll introduce them all briefly and then turn it over to Rich. Before doing that, I would like to highlight the Q&A function uh, on your screen. It's at the bottom, uh, bottom toolbar. Uh, we encourage uh, audience questions, um, and so please uh, feel free to contribute there. Uh, and then Rich will moderate uh, the, the Q&A portion of the discussion today. So on to introductions. Uh, David Trout is the Distinguished Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School uh, and is the founding director of the Rutgers Center on Law, Inequality, and Metropolitan Equity. He teaches and writes about race, class, and legal structure. His most recent book is The Price of Paradise, The Cost of Inequality, and a Vision for a More Equitable America. Thad Williamson is an associate professor, professor of leadership studies and philosophy at the University of Richmond. He served as the first director of Richmond's Office of Community Wealth Building, and then uh, more recently as a senior policy advisor in the mayor's office. He is author of, or editor of several books, including Sprawl, Justice and Citizenship, The Civic Costs of the American Way of Life, and He's a co-editor of a new volume titled Community Wealth Building and the Reconstruction of American Democracy. Can we make American democracy work? I hope the answer to that question is yes, um, but we'll hear more about it uh, in a little bit. Our moderator today is Rich Schrager. He's a law professor here at uh, the University of Virginia. His scholarship focuses on the intersection of constitutional law and local government law. Uh, he also writes um, and teaches on urban policy and the constitutional and economic status of cities. Uh, recently, he is the author of uh, a book, City Power, Urban Governance in a Global Age. Uh, I'm looking, uh, very much looking forward to uh, interesting conversation on these themes and I will turn it over to Rich. Well, th thanks Mike so much for, uh, for uh, your, your, your kind introductions. Um, it's terrific today to have uh, these two um, uh, scholars, um, activists, participants in the in public policy circles as well, um, Thad and David. Um, and I just want to thank them for coming and joining us. Um, uh, as Mike said, this is part of the, the, the new place program at the University of Virginia School of Law, where we consider the the uh, built environment as part of, uh, of, of, of the environment more, uh, more broadly, and also the, uh, the, the distribution of people, the resources that they have access to, um, uh, and their, their placement in metropolitan areas uh, and in rural and in urban areas. These are all issues that, that are uh, central to, to, to these authors' works and central to, to this inquiry that we're, that we're uh, engaged in here. So I wanted to just start, um, as Mike said, they're, they're, you're both authors. I wanna start with David to talk a little bit about The Price of Paradise, 
um, your your book, a, a terrific book. This the subtitle of the Price of Paradise is the Costs of Inequality and a Vision for a More Equitable America. And we've had now a uh, uh, obviously an election season, which is uh, not quite over, or at least for some folks is not quite over, um, in which there have been lots of debates about um, both racial and socioeconomic equity in the United States. Um, and I know your book um, uh, addressed some of that. Could you say a little bit about um, what your argument is in The Price of Paradise? Uh, David, I want you to unmute. Sorry, right. I, no, that's okay. <laughs> funny, we're on these calls all day long and we forget when we're actually presenting. So the, the book begins by centering the problem of, of structural inequality in American life. And it, it, it's, it's centered as a problem for all of us. And it's defined primarily as place-based inequality, which is to say that most of the inequality that we see um, you know, in empirical outcomes is the result of institutional practices that differ from place, from place to place and that you can compare what obtains in a middle-class community, even within the very same institutions from, uh, from what obtains in a low-income community. And you can see how norms, rules, and practices uh, within the same institution help to contribute to, to disparate outcomes. And so if that's sort of what place-based inequality is all about, and um, and 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 you know, it leads to the kinds of outcomes that you know individually we all get very upset about it. What is it that's actually doing it, and what's doing it are inequitable processes. So if 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 inequality is the outcome, inequity is the means. And so um, you know, first you kind of have to define. I think because it's a ubiquitous term nowadays, you have to define equity. And I try in the book to define equity as as deeply informed by fairness, but not exclusively about fairness. You know, fairness would be, I get one, you get one. Um, but, you know, if you've already got five, maybe I should get two or three, you know, because equality would, would, would ultimately break down um, if, if we discounted what time had produced for you. So equity is really fairness plus time. And you have to, you have to make that argument for uh, folks who struggle with that, especially if they, they see these, these cumulative advantages as being the result of their own hard work and people's cumulative disadvantages as being attributable to you know, personal characteristics um, and the like. And so the book works through six sets uh, of assumptions that are held by many Americans and tries to break them down such as you know, the notion that middle-class people are entirely self-sufficient or that poor people are, you know, are, are, are sort of living through uh, a self-created fate or that, you know, that segregation is really a thing of the past or that racism doesn't, doesn't particularly matter much to outcomes anymore. And then ultimately I argue for, for you know, law and policy that is animated by a norm of mutuality, a recognition that this, this unequal system that we have is producing enormous costs and enormous wastes, not just enormous pain and harm. And, uh, and therefore we all have uh, something in uh, the outcome and, um, and, and may have to make some sacrifices in order to unburden uh, what has, as Kamala Harris put it so eloquently the other night, uh, to unburden for some of us what has been. That's great. 
David, say just say one more sentence or two about what the price of paradise, what is that price that that's paid? Just say a little bit more about that in the title, because it's really, um, I think it's the essence of, of this of this argument. Yeah, I think we're actually seeing the price of paradise um, um, right now. You know, I mean, that's 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 uh, we're seeing it manifest in so many different ways. But but essentially, the price of paradise is is um, is is the, the multiple costs, the costs that are internalized disproportionately by particular communities on whom we will greatly rely for the future. Right. Because as the you know, as 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 populations of color increasingly make up a majority of the labor force, if they are not given the inputs and the development of social capital consistent you know, with, a, with, with, a, with a global economic structure that relies primarily on services you know, and high-skilled labor, we all lose, right? If people are not paying taxes and are not, being, and not able to live productive lives, we all lose. If people live in communities that essentially make them sick, um, I mean, yeah, there are clearly some 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 climate issues there that that affect us all. But we pay for those individual costs. And if you flip it and try to imagine, well, what would happen if we were a far more equitable society? We'll see that we would generate a tremendous amount of wealth beyond what we currently have, um, and we'd have just many more participants in a democratic system that was really able to show itself to be robust. So it's it's really in our in our you know, in our philosophical DNA to do the right thing. It's just, unfortunately, it's, it's so often been in our historical practice to do the wrong thing. Thanks, David, that's great. I wanna to move to Thad and just get Thad to jump in here. You have a new book, um, which is, is, is not quite physically ready, but will be very, very soon, um, and uh, uh, about community wealth building. And I'm wondering if you'd, you'd like to say a little bit about that and maybe how it relates to what David's talking about. Uh, thanks, and actually it is physically ready. There's a few copies that is literally, literally just published a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and first of all, thanks for having me and David, good to be in the program with you and your, your book sounds awesome. I'm ready to go read it and maybe put on my syllabus for, for, for next term because it seems 100% on point. But um, the, the book, um, the new book that I've co-edited with Melody Barnes of UVA Democracy Initiative and also um, Corey Walker of Wake Forest, you know, it really, you know, taking a critique of the kind David just articulated, kind of his background or given, what is a constructive policy paradigm for actually addressing, you know, deep-seated inequities, you know, problems at the scale they exist. And we kind of have two kind of overlapping arguments and one, one is actually an argument about national politics which is that you know whereas like the three of us and, and others probably on the call could sit around all day long and come up with ideal national initiatives and policies and programs basically the entire history of the last 50 plus years <laughs> indicates there's not going to be adequate political support to actually do the right thing you know, and, and actually fund that at the scale that exists. And even with President Obama that, that uh, Melody you know, served in a pretty high level role under, you know, the federal government had important initiatives, obviously a huge breakthrough on, on, on healthcare, but, you know, in terms of things that are gonna really fundamentally rescale inequity in American cities, you didn't see enough, you didn't see very much. And I have no reason to think uh, that Biden-Harris 
administration, at least initially, is, is going to be able to do a whole lot better. Yes, it will be a dramatic improvement in so many ways, but but you look at you know the forecast, you know the high possibility of divided government. We're going to have stalemate at the legislative level on a lot of things, and so I don't mean to pour you know rain on people's parade right now, but I'm looking at that and saying, is national politics going to deliver salvation for us on these kinds of issues? For the next few years, and I somewhat doubt it. Although I do think it has a, a, an incredibly, uh, you know, supportive, helpful role to play. So, so if that's right, then you know, do we give up on these bold equity equity goals? We continue to sit back decade after decade as the inequalities grow and grow, you know, of, of both income and wealth, or can we possibly imagine a different approach that, that starts, you know, uh, a little bit more bottom up? You know, and so, so that flips the second argument, which is actually an argument about local politics. I, I, I don't think this is a, an uncontroversial argument we're making, but, but we're saying is that uh, it may be possible at the local level to build a robust consensus around bold equity goals and get buy-in that kind of overcomes the usual partisan gridlock and on the grounds that you know, it's not in the community's interest to continue to have an extremely high poverty rate or continue to have an extremely you know, dysfunctional uh, public school system, uh, so forth and so on. Yeah, and obviously, you know, th there's, there's conflict of interest and ideologies at the local level. I I'm not saying that, but, but where we're seeing it in, in several cities and Richmond has been part of it where, you know, you can sort of knit together with skilled political leadership, you can knit together an approach that says, we're gonna take the lead on establishing bold equity goals. And we're going to do everything within our power uh, to intentionally, you know, and strategically direct our resources towards those goals. And then we're going to look up the, the ladder to the state government and federal government to get the additional resources and we would need to bring things to scale. So, so we're calling that, you know, community wealth building. Um, and uh, you know, the Office of Community Wealth Building, you know, in Richmond, I can talk about that more, but it's one sort of, uh, you know, exemplification of it. There's a similar office in Rochester, but also I think other cities are doing similar things, whether they're calling it community wealth building or, or, or not. And, you know, and just to summarize, you know, before we have to go on, we, we, four key things. One is inclusive participation up front. You know, and I think this is absolutely critical um, because you know, for democracy to be real, it has to depend on some level on the idea that individual person can make their voice heard and have some kind of measurable impact that they can see some kind of outcome based on the effort they put in. And then that's typically very, very difficult to do when you talk about national level things, you know, other than the actual active voting. But, you know, you know, in, in our city, and we're, we're not, we're not the, the largest city, but we're not insubstantial either. You know, I can tell you story after story where individual people have actually made a difference and where participation has actually mattered to the things that the city has decided to do. And if you don't do that, then it's just a bunch of elite academics talking at people, right? So, so I, I think that's the most fundamental thing. But then secondly, is setting up bold equity goals. So in Richmond, it's been, we're gonna to try to cut poverty by 40% by the year 2030 and, and trying to communicate that goal and get you know, agencies and nonprofits and business community and others to sort of buy into that. The third is a holistic approach to wealth. So obviously we mean you know, economic wealth, but also you know, social capital, physical capital, the various kinds of things that make up, you know, uh, a healthy life. And, and, and sometimes, yeah, yeah our, our contention would be that in any 
community, even if it's classified, you know, as poor or low income, there is wealth there. There are assets there. You know, there are things to build on. You know, and and, and so we, it's it's very much you know in the spirit of, of uh, an asset based uh, approach. You know, and, and, and trying to, to to say the point is if you're short in one area, maybe you can use what you already have. You know, to, to knit together a strategy. You know, to make up. You know, for for what you're lacking. Yeah, and the last thing is is, is this involves economics and innovative economic tools, and, and and I think this points to maybe a conversation on economic development that we may be about to have, uh, which is that if you run the normal market and you're not intentional about it, you know neighborhoods get left out decade after decade after decade. So you have to do something different. It's actually going to shift the way resources flow, you know, in, in, in both the public economy, but, but in the private economy, you know, and there are a variety of ways that have been tried or are being tried to do that. But for me, the bottom line is, is it bringing more wealth and assets into places that have been neglected and also to people who have been left out of the pie. Thanks, Thad. That's that's great. So, so there's a there's a ton of issues. I want to remind our audience that you can you can ask questions of our panelists through the the Q and A the, the function at the bottom of your screen. Just type those in. I'll take a look at those and and try to distribute those uh, to the panelists um, as we go. So, um, um, but I'd like this to be a conversation. Um, so, talk a little bit. I, you know, I I don't. Uh, uh, um, at uh, uh, Thad and David, you both sort of referenced uh, recent events, which is the presidential election, in which there was, um, I think, two two things or two two big things that I'd like love for you to address. One is the Black Lives Movement Matter, uh, Black 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 Lives Matter movement, which um, brought I think um, renewed attention. Um, uh, to uh, spatial inequality, to economic inequality, and to, to, the, to, to the problem of race on top of a presidential campaign in which there was a demonization of cities, right? Um, and um, and um, obviously President Trump uh, seeking to frighten particularly white suburbanites, right? And I wonder what your reaction was to that discourse um, how you see it playing out. It, it's just a repeat of kind of what we've seen before in our political life. Um, and also what you, what you think is possible, and Thad, you've said a little bit about this, um, what you think is possible in light of the polarization that that, that, that discourse has reflected, I think, um, that recent discourse has reflected. Um, and either of you can start, David, if you, if you wanna jump in. That's great. And then Thad, after that. Wow, so much to unpack in that <laughs> question. My goodness. All right, let's let's start. Let's start with the Black Lives Matter movement. So the 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 the, the significance of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, um, is that it really um, helped to become the kind of um, the, the 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 galvanizing point for so much. Um, anti-Trump resentment, as well uh, on on a number of different issues, but um, but focused first and foremost on police brutality and the, the so police brutality then represents you know that 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 
um, that institution with the greatest staying power for reproducing racial inequality. There are many institutions that do, but 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 none as efficiently and as consistently as as police control of black bodies. And um, and so what the Black Lives Matter movement does, as far as I'm concerned, from a sort of a theoretical standpoint, is it really shows us, you know, system design, right? Um, through a, through a critical institution, how one institution props up other institutions, and how accountability or some sense of justice is is impossible within that institution because it wasn't designed for it, right? And so so that's very powerful and very threatening. Um, and I think what we'll probably see politically out of the Black Lives Matter movement is the, the, the growth of all sorts of household political names over the next, you know, uh, a couple of decades, very much like out of Black Power into, you know, Manpower Development Corporation and then school board elections, we saw a generation of Black elected officials at the local level, you know, in the 60s and the 1970s. So I think it's very critical in that sense. Then on the other side, right? It, it, is, it, is, it is also an attack on systemic racism in the middle of a pandemic that is disproportionately taking the lives of black people and brown people, but of black people too, right? So black lives matter in that respect too, because black lives are being snuffed out disproportionately by this, by this, by this public health emergency, which is itself showing cumulative disadvantages, right? In the, in the exposure uh, uh, to the virus that becomes, um, you know, inescapable for so many black workers based on the types of jobs that they've had to have, um, not just low wage jobs, but even really good jobs like, like, like bus drivers, you know, um, but they're public regarding public union jobs that reflect an inability to get into other <laughs> positions and so you're protected in these public unions, but you're not protected by, from, from, from a pathogen, right? And so, and so the explosion, you know, which of course in this president's mind leads to another perfect opportunity to exploit the division, um, you know, and, 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 to and, and to exploit the division through kind of crass binaries like cities and suburbs. Um, which don't typically hold, right? I mean, there are plenty of cities that he doesn't name because he needs them, <laughs> right? There are only, only cities like, you know, like the Newarks and the Milwaukee's, you know, and the Detroit's um, and the Atlantis that are problematic for their, for their large black votes. And so finally to this, this, this point of, you know, using the exploitation of this false binary between city and suburb to galvanize white voters and white fear against intruding black mobs. You know, I, I was really kind of happy to see um, what appeared to be, you know, its ineffectiveness, but I, I can't go that far. I, I don't really know. For one, because suburbs are dramatically changing and the inner ring will become, I think, increasingly, even though it's, 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 it's increasingly working class uh, folks of color, um, it may become much more important as people try to flee the city, but not don't flee too far. Um, so we don't really know what that will mean. We know that 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 suburbs are diversifying, but they're primarily diversifying sort of in in in, in rings and not not within jurisdictional boundaries. Um, the other is just I, I'm not sure that um, I'm, I'm I'm not sure that that resonates. You know, with the 45% of the electorate that that voted out of suburbs. Um, and the overwhelming percentages 
that Trump got nationally, I'm not an election results expert, but it, it, it seemed that it either came too little too late or it just did not resonate. Um, as so many of the issues that Thad talks about at the local level have probably come to intrude upon that rhetoric and suggest, you know, it, we are hearing a lot about equity here. We are seeing, you know, some experiments in, in governance that suggest a norm of equity. And it's and it, and it hasn't killed us off, you know, and I mean, and, and, and that there may be actually something to this, all dampening the effectiveness of, of Trump's divisive racial city suburb message. Thad, you have some views on that? Yeah, well, um, you know, in Richmond, the last you know, five or six months, you know, you know, Black Lives Matter has just been um, I mean, it's been a thing that's been happening that there have been protests basically continuously since, since late May. And I'm sure everybody on the call is, is aware about um, you know, the monuments, you know, Monument Avenue being taken down and the transformation of the remaining Robert E. Lee statue into basically a Black Lives Matter uh, shrine and, and community space has basically been completely taken over and, and remade. And I, there are a lot of people on Saturday after the election was called by the um, mainstream media <laughs> uh, that people gather there and you know and we went down there too and you know it's it just become uh, a community space and a movement that really even the rich white people who live right there have more or less embraced you know and, and so it's just been just really interesting and that's one of the things that is maybe different about this time you know obviously uh African-Americans have been experiencing routine police brutality for as long as this country has been around. But there's something about the George Floyd video in the context of a pandemic that triggered something a little bit different. And I'm not sure how long it's going to last, but it seems to just engender, you know, like, a, oh, my God, this is incredibly wrong. I have to do something about it. And more white people than I think have been the case previously at a national level. And that's even reflected in some of the people who turned up in Richmond. Um, but also, you know, I think some of relates to what David said, I, I do think that, um, you know, Trump has helped radicalize local politics. Like I, I do not think the monuments would have been torn down. We've had all these protests if someone else other than Trump had been present. But, but, you know, but it's going back to you know, the Charlottesville 2017 and before has sort of just pushed to the question, pushed the question to the fore of like, are we gonna be an inclusive multiracial democracy or are we gonna be a white supremacy? And people are being forced to take a stand, you know, on that, you know, on city after city, you know, and, you know, definitely Black Lives Matter was um, a force in our local mayor's race. You know, basically that movement helped spawn a candidate who ended up finishing second and helped push the incumbent who, who won, but helped push that incumbent to do some things, including establish a, a police civilian review board, you know, which would have been almost off the table just like two years ago, you know, and now it's everybody's for it, right? So, so I, I think there has been some change, but but you know, the question is, is it going to be lasting change that really addresses these structural issues that are a lot harder than just a review board or, or tearing down monuments? So that, that remains to be seen. And the last thing I say, you know, on the suburban question, you know, um, my dissertation and you know, a lot of my earlier uh, published academic work focused on the impact of sprawl on uh, you know, political participation, but also you know, voting patterns. And 
you know, as David said, the inner suburbs have really flipped in a lot of places. So I was just looking in 2000, um, in 2000, the, uh, you know, in, in, in Richmond, in Rico and, and uh, uh, Chesterfield were both overwhelmingly Republican and, and you voted for Bush over Gore. Yeah, and then both of them, you know, went for uh, Biden this time and the flip is about 20 points. So it's a 20 point flip in 20 years. I call that significant change. And, and again, you, you get out to the outer rings and, and it's a similar pattern with the farther out, it's, it's more, it's, it's much more conservative, which leads to some interesting situations when you have, you know, Congress people like Abigail Spanberger, who's in districts that kind of span both of the suburbs and in the deeply rural areas and is trying to navigate that. But, you know, I, I you know, I didn't think Trump's appeal to the, um, as he called the white suburban housewives, which itself was a misnomer to say the least, you know, um, I didn't think it was gonna work and actually I don't think it did. So I'm sort of encouraged by that. Thank you, thank you both. So I have a, so I have a comment and a, and a question from a listener um, uh, who says so many aspects of inequality are built into the physical structure of our cities. And both of you have written extensively about this. So I think you, you, this is a great question. What role then, uh, the questioner asks, is, is, does the built environment play in moving towards e equity, right? When we're talking about say structures, we might be talking about structural institutional role, but we're also talking about the structures of geography, space, and the built environment. What What are your thoughts on that, David? You have some. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, at Climb over the last couple of years, we've done a fair amount of research on on a, a, a range of housing issues, but also on on the the, the phenomenon of um, disproportionate complex trauma in in low-income communities and just how crippling exposure to violence can be in neurological development and neurobiological life course. Um, so much can be, uh, so much in, in, in terms of people's mental health and ultimately their physical health can be closely associated with their experiences, um, particularly of stress. And what does it have to do with the built environment? Um, well, so it, it, it turns out, of course, that, that low-income people of color, for the most part, um, live in, in um, much older housing, right? In, in, in communities that are um, generally older, less invested in, in terms of just landlord um, uh, rehabilitation, renovation, upkeep, the city's investment in infrastructure, and so part of the danger of living in these communities is the danger of the built environment itself and the stresses that it imposes on the body. Um, and it really becomes part of a constellation of forces um, along with concentrated poverty, segregated poverty and isolation from all sorts of other opportunities that, um, that you know, help to trigger violent reactions, right? And so this, this combination of, of um, public health vulnerability um, arising from, um, from, from an unhealthy environment on top of the desperation in so much behavior, hurt people, hurting people, that then compounds so much of that 
um, is then reflected in all sorts of institutional responses, right? Um, problems between tenants and landlords that lead to evictions because landlords won't fix things, but tenants won't pay and landlords have, you know, uh, a, a unequal bargaining power, access to lawyers, and they will basically churn through, through tenants who are then sort of blacklisted and pushed into worse and worse housing. Um, or child welfare institutions, you know, um, child welfare does not care that your landlord won't fix that, that, um, that, you know, that, that, that ceiling. Um, if it's deemed uninhabitable, and you haven't cured it, um, you can lose your kids, right? And so, um, so, 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 yes, we, we assume that housing court is replete with inequality because it's primarily affecting kids. And we assume that family court is replete with inequality because it's affecting low-income low income people for the most part too. But behind it are a set of conditions that are not entirely uh, reduced to the built environment, but are certainly uh, working hand in hand with deficits within the, the, uh, the built environment. Ted, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I agree uh, with all that. I would just add, it's not only the built environment in, in terms of the actual, you know, physical outlay of specific places, but it's also the ways these overlap, you know, with, with the legal boundaries. So, you know, in, in Richmond metropolitan area, we basically only have a bus system in the city, and then for years and years, the you know the counties have been able to have basically be able basically to block uh, public bus service out to the very place where the jobs are growing and on pretty much explicitly racist grounds. And it's only in the last you know, you know, handful of years, frankly, where some support for more limited bus service to the, the counties uh, has become possible. And so the result is we've had a situation where low-income African-Americans uh, do not have access to uh, the growing job centers, you know, in the economy, you know, uh, and, and where a lot of the entry level jobs uh, would be. Likewise, similar story around housing. So, you know, we have six large public housing communities, you know, built between about 1940 and about 1970. None of them are in very good condition. Um, you know, the heat fails, there's just some deep infrastructural problems, but up to this point, it's been seen pretty much exclusively the city's problem to deal with. And no one has said in Ryko County, Chesterfield County, you have a responsibility uh, to help, you know, the Richmond metropolitan region as a whole figure this out and, and, and how accommodate, um, you know, better quality low-income housing units. You know, and, and so consequently, uh, you get a dynamic where any effort within the city uh, is met with a lot of fear because people think that if you demolish these things, people are just going to be thrown out on the street. And that's not irrational based on you know, what could potentially happen if, if this is not done the right way. But, but then the city itself hasn't to date had the resources you know, to, to do it the right way, right? And by the right way, I mean one-for-one -one replacement, better quality units, you know, you know, hands-on support for each and every household to make sure they get through the whole process you know, in, in a good way, you know, and, and so that, that, that speaks to, you know, you know in, in Virginia, and I think many other places, the cities have been stuck with all the problems and have the fewest resources and then get blamed and batted around when they don't magically come up, you know, with the answer. 
So, I mean, I, I still think that that's where we are in, in Virginia, at least. Um, although I, I think um, there's more awareness of that that is a dynamic than I've ever seen before. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, can I just ask very quickly, and this might not be a quick answer, the, there's a long, large, long and ongoing debate about place-based interventions versus mobility-based interventions. That is in, giving money to people so they can move to better locations or more resource-rich locations, or concentrating on, on improvement in, in the neighborhoods. Uh, do you have views on that debate? Is it a sterile debate? How should we think about it? Um, that debate is my life, um, <laughs> you know, and, uh, right? and I, this is, this is the big, yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, it, it is and it isn't, you know, I think it's really changed over the last four years. Um, but, but I was among those who was, you know, it, it's a both end, but, but I was heavily invested in the mobility, in mobility strategies because, you know, Theoretically and empirically, they make the most sense. It's, it is the most efficient way to get resources to people who have been systematically denied resources, right? It's very much the Brown v. Board theory of, of, of resource allocation. If, if, if you get low-income people, low-income people of color, because low-income low whites already live in, in middle-income neighborhoods and enjoy the same schools and the same political representation and the same supermarkets, you know, as, as much wealthier whites. So if you, if you can do that for low-income people of color, you can spread the costs um, in a much more equitable way and in a much, uh, and much more quickly see sort of all boats rise. And then there's, there's good, you know, Raj Jetty and the rest of the mobility scholars have, have demonstrated that um, beginning with the psychological effects and then on toward the more material effects over time, it really does work. That said, <laughs> you know, um, it works, but it, 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 it is not easily um, compelled. And we know this, right? We know this by how <laughs> we know this by how how difficult it is to pronounce HUD's program <laughs> for <laughs> for making it happen, right? Affirmatively furthering fair housing. I mean, can we come up with a better name than that? You know, like maybe community wellness. You know, uh, uh, closer to what Dad's been talking about, since it does have these these much broader benefits. But in any event, um, that is to say that 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 we have had tremendous difficulty as a legal and regulatory matter, compelling communities to open themselves up. And I think what we've learned in the, in the Trump years is that other than more affluent and middle-class professional blacks, there is not much appetite for low-income blacks to move into neighborhoods that they increasingly believe as late as 2020 are racially hostile to their presence. And that although they are, they can certainly cite chapter and verse about the the resource de deficits within the institutions that they currently interact. If they think about the suburbs, they think about being pulled over by cops. They think about being hassled. They think about being, you know, snarled at. They think about their kids being over and hyper disciplined in school. They think about being, you know, having their kids classified as special ed. On and on and on. And so it just. As a practical matter, it is hard to imagine investing all of our efforts in, in a mobility strategy despite its efficiencies. On the other hand, cities are, and I think will continue to be, 
the center of things. And, uh, and we are certainly seeing this in Newark. And so the, the job in Newark is, and places like it, where blacks make up a majority and people of color make up a vast majority, is really to, to be able to hold the line and ensure that um, the displacement does not follow revitalization and the entry of, of a white population that really hasn't been there in two generations. Thad, you wanna address that also? Yeah, I, I'm very much in both and uh, I'm laughing because about 10 years ago, there was sort of two competing volumes of urban theorists. One very much place-based camp, another one was uh, you know, the mobility camp. I was the only person who had a chapter in both and, and somehow <laughs> got away with that without making anybody too angry. But uh, you know, I, I think it's certainly, um, you know, as a moral matter, if somebody's path to mobility involves moving, you know, moving out of the city to a suburb, uh, great. Yeah, I would never <laughs> say, no, he can't go, it's ridiculous. But 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 also, you know, think that uh, as sometimes it, by itself, it feels a little bit like a lifeboat strategy in, in which you're not really dealing with underlying structural things that are gonna impact the majority of, of the people actually living in, in, in those environments. Uh, you know, so I, I wanna strengthen, you know, neighborhoods and cities as far as you possibly can go, you know, but, but then do other, you know, broader policies that, that facilitate, you know, uh, social mobility. And we understand, you know, social mobility is often going to mean you're moving at, at some point. Um, but, you know, I, I want to make sure that even when people are moving, it's a good community that's left behind for those and not just people being abandoned where they are. Yeah, great. Um, so that's, yeah, I love the nuance of the two. Uh, they've been pitted, but there's a, there's just, there's a range of strategies, certainly. Some of them will involve mobility, some will involve place-based, It's but it's, the debate does get, get pretty, um, uh, pretty heated sometimes among, among policymakers and scholars, at least. Let me ask a little bit about community wealth building that because we have some questions in the queue about it. One, one comment was uh, a questioner asked, um, a lot of these local movements are women-led uh, and unpaid. And is that something we should be concerned about or we could work on? Number two, are there, are there um, good models of kind of the kind of civic engagement that's necessary and time and effort that's necessary to generate this kind of bottom-up effort particularly among uh, groups and neighborhoods that have been excluded uh, from the political process in significant ways or alienated from them. David, you could answer, answer that too, in terms of what any experiences you may have had. Are there models of how to do this? So sort of the makeup of kind of local bottom-up community wealth building groups, who's advocating for them and how do you, how do you get folks involved? Um, uh, 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 your thoughts. Yeah, so, you uh, first? yeah go ahead, and then David. Okay, okay. Um, Matt, I'll share a little bit about Richmond, not to say that there's ideal, but I, I do think we try to be thoughtful about you know, exactly the set of questions. So, you know, we had a, an anti-poverty commission under the previous mayor, Dwight Jones, that came up with sort of some broad recommendations, but there was, all, but there was a question about how are we going to actually implement this? You know, and 
do we really know the, what we would recommend specifically is going to be value added from the perspective of the communities themselves? So we created a citizens advisory board that, that consisted deliberately of folks who live in low income neighborhoods or themselves, you know, um, low income. You know, we we wanted to actually get the most outspoken activists we possibly could find and, and, and bring them in, and, um, both because they knew a lot and, and because they could help get the entire community on board and you know this certainly was messy but i regard that as as, as critical um because it meant then when it came time to implement it you know we, we could say our north star is this plan that this group of people has signed off on and and so when i went in there and became the director you know especially you know until it became more formalized as a formal agency i, I was thinking i'm mainly responsible to those people who sat in the meetings with me for a year and who collectively you know, supported and helped shape this effort, that we're gonna try to do everything that they're expecting us to do. And so I, I think that you know, mechanism of accountability on the front end uh, is important and it may be hard to replicate, you know, but, but, it, but the next thing we did to try to make it sustainable is we did pay people you know, for their service uh, on the board, and we were one of the only boards, maybe the first in Richmond at that time, that there was a paid board, you know, and, and, and the councilwoman Ellen Robertson and I worked with very closely at that time was adamant about that, and we got you know, the mayor and council to, to go along with that. So that speaks to the thing, yeah, these things aren't sustainable if they're running on the unpaid labor, uh, and if it's, if, it's, if it's important, if we value it, if we say participation is really important, we have to compensate it. Uh, in some way, you know, and, and certainly money, I think, is appropriate, but as well as you know, voice and influence and respect. Yeah, yeah that's a David. that's a great thought. Um, the the um, the importance of of compensating is actually something that I try to do within my own center, but we haven't been as successful in doing across Newark. So let me let me just give you a little bit of Newark because I think people may not know much about that example, and it it is helpful to hear. You know, from from the, the the places where we're currently experimenting. Um, so Newark doesn't have a, a Republican Party to speak of. It doesn't have a white middle class. It doesn't have a middle class. Uh, uh, really, about eighteen percent of the city is middle class. So it's you know you have to understand it in context. And, and yet it's it, it it it's it's the biggest city in New Jersey, and it's in the middle of Essex County, which is one of the wealthiest counties, but also one of the most segregated counties. And so you know there 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 are uh, all these contrasts. There's a very progressive mayor who is um, uh, with whom we work very closely, and he, Ras Baraka, you know, is 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 um, committed to notions of of what we call equitable growth. And so, equitable growth is all sorts of things, but it sort of begins with a commitment first and foremost to to the resident population as opposed to you know the hope of outsiders coming in and transforming the culture um, and giving them what they need getting for them through local government um, what they need sort of um, uh, making up for for uh, resource deficits of the past and and that so much of of of, you know, of sort of market making and economic development needs to go to the accumulation of greater and greater resources that can be spread much more equitably among populations that that have not seen it and have not seen it for a very long time for reasons that you know we've, we've alluded to in earlier answers. 
But on this question of uh, participatory democracy, the extent to which you really have a robust grassroots, you know, we do and we don't, to be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really in the middle of it and it's been, it's been quite an education. I feel very privileged. I'm in the middle of it as a, as a, as a center director engaging in anchor institution work out of a very progressive university commitment to the city. And that is actually meaningful. There are a number of us. I don't know if that's true of every city, but the anchor institutional commitment is real. And you see us in every facet of kind of community building. Then there are the CDCs. Newark is very fortunate to have some old CDCs that have been around, you know, feels like everything is rooted in 1967 when there, when we had the uprising. It's kind of the historical point of, of reference for so many things, including the birth of these organizations and they're strong. And so they are very much at the table with city government, with the anchor institutions, as well as a few large corporations. Missing from this, excuse me, picture, you know, is small d democracy, where you, you really have a, a, a kind of a robust citizen participation, whether it's organized or not. Um, that's not to say that there aren't advocacy groups. That's not to say that there isn't a grassroots, but the, the, the sort of primary medium is city government. You know, the mayor has a tremendous amount of power in sort of setting the tone about transformational change. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing but it's a delicate balance. And it'll be, you know, so part of our job is to find ways to broaden participation and, and to institutionalize um, the, the, you know, the, the, very, the various elements of equitable growth. Tim, talk to me a little bit about uh, housing because um, we have a few questions about this too, which is, so exclusionary zoning seems to have sort of the, the, the attacks on exclusionary zoning, which started in the 60s and 70s have now seems to be resurged, at least on the coasts. Um, is it necessary for state involvement to, to get sort of the equitable development in metropolitan regions, the housing that Thad was talking about, say in the richer, in the richer uh, uh, parts of the, of the metropolitan area? Are there aspects of the of the YIMBY movement, for example, that you think are good, that you think are bad, that are that are not relevant? Um, any thoughts about about those about that issue? If Thad, you want to start, and then David. Yeah, um, you know, I, I see NIMBYism even within the city, uh, uh, Richmond. Um, you know, and. and relatively affluent neighborhoods that are, that are majority white and that may view themselves as being very progressive. And yet when the multifamily development proposal comes along, you know, it's, oh my God, the traffic, you know, and, and, and that's always kind of disturbed me. Um, and I think, I think it's just an ongoing uh, thing. It's not gonna go away, but that's where if you've gotten upfront clarity on what your community-wide goals are and say, hey, you remember how we said we were gonna cut poverty by you know, 40%? Well, to do that, we need to have better housing options for people so they grow their income, they can move up to a slightly better place. And this can be one of those places to keep them in the city 
you know, and have us benefiting from their you know, advancing prosperity. At least sort of push back on it, you know. Uh, but almost always, it's going to end up being, you know, uh, a, a fight and, and sort of a grind that's going to be, you know, decided in a council meeting, depending on how many people turn up. But so, but I don't think it's just a, a county issue, and I, and I think this is one where maybe race is truly salient still, you know, no, no matter what geography uh 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 we're talking about so you know on the other hand you know i i think uh, richmond has seen some intentional efforts you know to do land trusts you know and, and to try to make more uh housing you know permanently affordable and and one of the opportunities that you know we have uh is we have you know thousands of um you know vacant or you know, properties uh either vacant lots or, or housing you know units or some kind of structure that is not in use and if we could figure out a way to rapidly get those kind of converted, it could expand, you know, the supply. And if, and if we were super intentional, we can make as many of those who are permanently affordable through a land trust concept. So I'm encouraged that like that thought pattern that really wasn't present on Richmond when I came like 15 years ago is now very mainstream. Everybody supports it. It's just a matter of will they prioritize it enough to put the muscle and resources in to make it happen at the scale needed. Yeah, I would agree. Um, we we sort of two sides of that question, right? I, I live in New Jersey. Uh, NIMBYism and uh, and not so much NIMBYism is alive and well. We really don't see much penetration in you know in the exclusionary ethos of most at least middle class suburbs to fight to keep things out. And yet we have the vehicle of Mount Laurel or the New Jersey Fair Housing Act to at least ensure that there's some serious attention paid to it. And I think many in the state feel like that's probably enough. So we don't hear a lot of these fights anymore outside of the, uh, the Mount Laurel declaratory judgment uh, action context. Um, in places like Newark, yes, it's, it's, and other places increasingly, it is the fear of displacement as a result of gentrification. That's slowed obviously in the last, nine months, but that was very much the concern over the last couple of years. And as I say, not just in Newark, um, it's really, you know, we're seeing suburban gentrification um, in particular towns around New Jersey and, and, and they're almost uncertain how in the world they're supposed to deal with such an urban problem. The primary means that we've used in Newark is to first do some of the things that Dad was just suggesting to preserve inventory, right? Preserve inventory at all costs. You've got rent control, beef it up. You've got public housing, don't lose any more of it. You've got um, vacant and abandoned properties owned by the city. Make sure that you not just land bank it for you know easy disposition, but that you uh, that you that you make sure the disposition focuses on affordable housing, affordable housing supply. Uh, we passed the right to counsel ordinance to make sure that people are, are at least represented by lawyers before they're evicted. Um, we passed an inclusionary zoning ordinance, which has sort of struggled to get out of the gate. But all of these are me mechanisms to try to preserve the inventory against what we've seen in so many other cities. And that is just the loss of that inventory to increasingly wealthy, wealthy residents. Um, so we're, we're, you know, it's not perfect uh, and we are trying to scale it. Um, I, I very much like the idea of land trusts. I very much like the idea of, um, you know, limited equity co-ops and things like that, which I happen to grow up in, uh, you know, in, in, in Harlem in my own youth. And I can I see how it can work as a model. 
um, home ownership is going to be very difficult in a city like Newark, where the median income is 37,000. So we, we, we have to work with what we have, um, and that begins by preserving what's currently there. And David, just a quick follow-up. These are city-led efforts, the statutes and ordinances that you've, you've, you've described. You have the power to adopt an inclusionary zoning ordinance or a right to counsel or these other things. Yeah. It's, not state, it's not at the state level, it's at the city level. Land bank is at the state level, right to counsel city level, uh, even though the, the courts are controlled by the counties, yeah. uh, rent controls at the city level, uh, IZOs at the city level. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dad, do you face problems in a Dillon's rural state in Virginia if, in terms of the restrictions on what you can, what Richmond can do vis-a-vis -vis these kinds of, these kinds of uh, initiatives that David's talking about? Yes, <laughs> we, we, we don't have another hour. That was a leading question, I think, but. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, that can be addressed. I mean, there, there's so many innovative tools that other states do, and, and it's just frustrating because you'd always say, can we do it here? Our, our city attorney's office historically is pretty conservative. Like, they, they assume if we're not doing it already, we can't do it, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, a minimum wage ordinance or a living wage ordinance or, you know, flexibility around procurement to help develop social enterprise, uh, you know, allowing more um, progressive tax structures, you know, all kinds of things like that, that we would love to be able to do in the city that have been blocked, you know, and, and so you know, my thing is like, you're not going to give us you know, equitable funding on all, all these different levels or, or, and we're still living with the consequences of this race of structures can at least give us you know, the flexibility to be creative. Right, some, some, some level of authority. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, thank you both. We are, we are very close to being out of time, so I'm gonna wrap up. Um, but I did wanna thank uh, Thad and David both for being with us today. And um, we had a bunch of questions which hopefully Thad and David can take a look at um, and maybe respond to some of these folks, um, but just didn't have time to get to them. So I appreciate uh, you both you both uh, participating today. Go buy their books. David's is The Price of Paradise, The Cost of Inequality and a Vision for a More Equitable America. Thad's is, Thad, remind me of the title, Community Wealth Building and the Reconstruction of American Democracy. Can we make American democracy work? Yes, we can, I hope. But thank you. Thank you both. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. We Thank you, Rich. Great to see you again. Thank you, Thad. It was a pleasure. Likewise, David. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Hope to see you thank soon. You.